Good morning. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and let's get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Russia's now more than month-long invasion of Ukraine continues to be at the forefront of Western media. Media frames Ukrainian people as deserving refugees, particularly in comparison to refugees from the global south. We've seen neighboring countries welcome Ukrainians with open arms and many U.S. companies pulling their businesses out of Russia. Previous waves of refugee migration can be instructive on how long such goodwill might continue, as well as what those who are displaced by this conflict may face once resettled. To explore these questions today, I'm joined by Dr. Heba Goyed, whose book, Refuge, How the State Shapes Human Potential, is out April 5th. In it, she explores how countries structure the potential of people, new arrivals, or otherwise within their borders. Dr. Goyed is the Mormon Simon Assistant Professor of Sociology at Boston University. Her research, which is global and comparative, examines how low-income people traverse social services, immigration laws, and their associated bureaucracies while grappling with gender and racial inequalities. Her writing has appeared in the journals Gender and Society, Ethnic and Racial Studies, Sociological Forum, and in public outlets, including Slate and Teen Vogue. She is currently working on her second book, The Cost of Borders, which theorizes borders as a costly and often deadly transaction. Welcome, Dr. Heba Goyed. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Samal. Yes, I was so excited when I saw your book. I mean, such a timely examination. I mean, thinking about displacement more broadly, but also specifically Syrian refugees, as well as we see Syrian conflict ongoing for over a decade um, and the continuous movement of folks from Syria, especially, but of course, um, lots of movement of people around the world always happening. So I am so excited to have you here with us to kind of give us some insight into how we should be thinking about displacement, but also insight into, you know, what really happens to folks um, beyond just kind of these stories of, okay, people are now maybe free from the specific harm they were facing in their nation, but now all the other challenges and opportunities that they face once resettled. Absolutely. Um, You know, we are facing the world's largest crisis of displacement right now, as we're talking, and it really is a humanitarian crisis. So even before uh, people started fleeing Ukraine due to the invasion of, uh, due to the Russian invasion there, you already had 84 84 million people who are displaced globally. That's about one in every 95 people, Sana. So it's a really, really large number. Um, And what happens to those people? So the majority of the people displaced globally end up not very far from where they were displaced. So a lot of people don't even leave the country itself. They might leave their home, they might leave their neighborhood, they might leave their community, but they may seek refuge somewhere else within their country. And then there are people who leave the country, 
but remain in countries really nearby the country that they fled. So for Syrians, those are countries like Jordan, uh, Turkey, you know, when we're looking at the Ukrainians, this is going to be countries like Poland, Hungary, and historically, 83%, approximately four and five people never leave those countries of immediate refuge, right? Never leave the countries that are super proximate. Now, because of the ways in which our global inequalities work, because low-income countries tend to be next to low-income countries, which has to do with histories of colonialism, has to do uh, with, you know, historical sort of realities and patterns of exploitation, the countries that are nearby to countries where the violence happened tend to be also low-income countries and tend to have poor infrastructures. So what happens? I fled my country due to a war. Maybe I was a middle, you know, I was a business owner. I had a small business. Maybe I had um, my own home, which is what's often true for the Syrian uh, families that I, that I studied. And all that's gone. And any cash I had might be, you know, tied up to assets and not be very much. And so I arrive in a country like Jordan or Turkey, and I try to put my kids in school. I try to start something else there, but I don't have documents and the schools are overwhelmed and I struggle to find housing. And I might experience even discrimination there because locals feel like um, I don't belong there. And so I have fled the war, but I have not found refuge. And so stories of what happens next, right, after people arrive to these countries of immediate refuge are what I explore in, in my book, Refuge. And the stories that I tell there are of people who, in these countries that are proximate to their own, recognize that they weren't going to have they weren't going to be able to start new lives. They weren't going to be able to have new beginnings. And so what they did was they decided either A, to move to other countries, uh, which is asylum, which is where people flee and continue to move and show up to a new country and ask um, for recognition there, which is an international right. So when people cross the U.S.-Mexico border, when people cross into Europe, um, that is an international right to seek asylum. Um, and the other option, which is you know, less in their control, is what we call resettlement, which is how the United States admitted uh, the majority of Syrians who came here. And that means that in your country of immediate refuge, in a place like Jordan, or in a place like Turkey, or in a place like Lebanon, you register with the United Nations Higher Council for Refugees, and you're on a list and based on your vulnerability criteria, things like having a lot of school-aged children, having health burdens, having chronic health issues, you're selected for the possibility of vetting for resettlement, which takes an additional 18 to 24 months. At which point, if you pass all that, pass all the interrogation, pack up, pass all the background checks, pass the health checks, pass the biometric checks, you are then invited to travel to the destination country. Now, resettlement only, uh, you know, only 1% of people who are displaced are ever able to be resettled. Um, and so that's why people may pursue asylum, which, you know, is a very, very dangerous route. So that means that that's what you see footage on TV of, of people taking the blow up rafts across the Aegean and Mediterranean seas, um, people walking, uh, you know, for, for, in inordinate lengths of time um, to get from Latin America, for instance, to the United States, uh, people uh, trying to jump over borders um, 
in walls um, and fencing, whether that be at the US-Mexico border or um, in Europe. And so this is really the, the state and what it looks like, what the structure of resettlement looks like um, globally, where wealthier countries are sort of fortifying against people who are seeking asylum across the world. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for that. Because I think, you know, we often know so little about migration, immigration, and some of these legal processes. Um, so even understanding that asylum is a right, which oftentimes I think gets lost a lot in conversations, particularly in the U.S., around folks who are you know, seeking refuge. Um, so thank you so much for that. And then just clarifying what the resettlement process is, even in that kind of short overview, really bring home the point that resettlement is not some easy process or some automatic process, but a months-long, years-long process. And as you mentioned, just to reiterate that only 1% of people displaced actually are ever able to resettle. And juxtaposing that with the number that you started with, which is that one in 95 folks are displaced globally. And that statistic blows my mind. Mm -hmm. One in 95 those odds are so high, right? If we think about it in that way. Absolutely. And it's getting worse, Sana. It's getting worse. I mean, when we talk about the climate crisis, we're talking about a hypothesized 20 million people a year, 20 million people a year. So we're talking about exponential. We're talking about gargantuan growth of this number of displaced people. In, from, from Ukraine, we've already seen approximately, you know, I think it was the last time I looked about two and a half million people. Mm-hmm. And those numbers, as you mentioned, will continue to increase. Of course, climate, the climate crisis being one. And then again, there are multiple international crises happening, um, most of which aren't, you know, in our 24 hour news cycle, but are still ongoing. And like the Syrian war, which I know is the focus of your book. So I do want to give us opportunity to really dive into exactly, you know, what you are able to find throughout your research. Um, But just to remind listeners that this isn't just an issue with Ukraine, right? Again, that one being the most publicized and really watched right now. But this is um, ongoing issues that we have to understand more about what is happening to folks who are displaced, um, as we will see those numbers continuing to increase. Absolutely. And I just want to add on the issue of other folks who are displaced. So right now, Syrians uh, remain the largest displaced population. We've also got Nicaraguans who are being displaced. We've also got people from Bangladesh being displaced. We have the Rohingya, um, you know, crisis, which we, which, which there was just a, a statement about from the Biden administration. We have, you know, we have an inordinate number of people. We have people from Eritrea and South Sudan. And one of the things that has come up as we think about, uh, you know, people fleeing Ukraine is that there's a discrepant treatment, right? So Mm -hmm. Ukraine is much more in the media, um, is much more in the public eye, uh, but the way in which people seeking refuge from the Ukraine have been treated by countries nearby, countries like Poland and Hungary that have long been very, very violent 
um, towards other categories of immigrants um, and towards other categories of asylum seekers. Um, the European Union offering a three-year blanket residency to people from Ukraine, despite the fact that there are people at the periphery of the EU in places like Greece who have been waiting for years um, and whose asylum is denied. People, mind you, from Syria, who the world recognizes as fleeing uh, a war, um, but also from places like Afghanistan and Eritrea. Um, you've got you know, a situation where people are, are reaching the same borders and being treated very differently. So uh, as people were fleeing Ukraine, you had people of color be put on a physical different line um, than white Ukrainians uh, in terms of the priority and order at which they could flee. Um, and, you know, you have the building of a 325 million euro wall to keep folks out um, at that at those in borders, um, you know, that that people from the from Ukraine are being welcomed uh, across. But rather than focusing just on the discrepant treatment, uh, what I would love to urge listeners to do is to think about what the situation, what the reception of folks from the Ukraine really means for how our systems have long operated. Mm -hmm. We have this idea that borders and that restricted asylum is a part of state sovereignty, of course. It's the right of the United States or it's the right of countries in Europe to define their borders, to protect their resources against people who are not from here, right? Mm -hmm. But what this situation of Ukraine reveals is that these systems um, are really much more about political will rather than you know, issues, realist conceptions of, of, of uh, resources or realist conceptions of, you know, who can partake in national resources, right? It's less about protecting or less about our state capacities, but much more about who we're willing to support. So what I would like to, to urge readers or to urge listeners to think about is that how can we imagine, if we think about the way in which the Ukraine and which people from Ukraine have been received, right? How can that help us dream up and think of, and not even dream up, but replicate at this point, systems that are also receptive, that are also kind, that are also humane, that are also welcoming of other categories of people who like people from, from Ukraine are seeking refuge in these very same countries at these very same borders from very similar violence. And they're people who have aspirations, dreams, uh, you know, loves that are very similar to people from Ukraine, because we are we're all, you know, similar in our in, in the way in which we're made as humans. And so and so as we watch, um, I want to move away or I want to move beyond. So not move away, but move further from just thinking about the unfairness to think about and imagine what these systems could look like if we learned from Ukraine. Yes, I think that is so important. Um, of course, as sociologists, you know, we're very great at identifying all the problems and what's going wrong. But I think thinking about how we can use that in ways to create solutions um, is much more fruitful, especially again, as we think about displacement continuing, right, and continuing to happen, and the need for having different systems and processes in place, if we are really concerned with global wealth fair. Um, and we are all connected as these last couple years of COVID-19 have really shown us we are all connected and we do have to think about global solutions, not just these state solutions for people who we think of as like us, like the national us or worthy of belonging to the national us. Exactly, Sana. And that's exactly it, because at the heart of this is really who belongs here 
And what we've seen in the case of Ukraine and in the case of the welcoming of people from Ukraine, that there's a proximity there. But it's not just a proximity in countries that are nearby Ukraine. It's also the Biden administration today, just before I got on, saying they're going to resettle 100,000 people from Ukraine here. At the US-Mexico border, Title 42 has stopped people from even being able to apply for asylum. Customs and Border Patrol were told to use their discretion when it came to applicants from Ukraine. And this morning, I think there were 20 or 30 families that were let across the border based on the suspension of Title 42 just for people from Ukraine, despite the fact that a Mexican family was standing right next to the Ukrainian family and were not allowed uh, you know, movement. And that really makes you think about how we're defining who deserves refuge? Are we defining who deserves refuge based on who's been persecuted? The answer cannot be yes, because we haven't even vetted. We haven't allowed people who want to seek refuge at the US-Mexico border to even apply for asylum, which, as I said before, is an international right. Instead, we've been using Title 42, which is an, uh, a policy from the 1920s that is based on health, um, and that has been, that essentially gives the executive the right to prevent people who are assumed to have communicable diseases from entering a country in the context of a, a health crisis. Now, despite our, our public health folks saying that this, is a, that this is unnecessary and despite physicians saying this is unnecessary, Title 42, which was issued, which was uh, began by the Trump administration remains in place under the Biden administration, has been used to deny people even the right to apply for asylum. Mm -hmm. And so what we're, what we're seeing is we're seeing a systematic preference for people from Ukraine and white people from Ukraine um, over people of color, not just at the US-Mexico border, not just in Europe, but globally, right? Mm -hmm. And including in our media coverage, including in our policymaker status, and including in the legal pathways that we're generating for people from Ukraine that are denied systematically other people with disastrous consequences, Sana. People regularly die at these borders, yes. regularly die at these borders. So there is a very, very real human cost to this discrepant treatment and to these systems that we have in place um, that we're seeing new possibilities for um, in how the and how people from the Ukraine are received. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, we're going to talk more about what these systems look like beyond just kind of this first step, I guess, if you want to call it a first step at the a physical border um, and talk more about the systems that also are uh, refu refugees interact with once they are resettled or once they seek asylum. But let's mm -hmm. take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Heba Goyed, the Mormon Simon Assistant Professor of Sociology at Boston University and author of Refuge, which is out very soon. Um, before the break, you were kind of mentioning how some of these, how the systems that we do have in place um, around the world, right, in, in response to displaced persons are not just about political or not just about capacity, but more so about political will. And I know um, in your book, you really talk about some of these different systems that in this case, um, Syrian refugees interact with as they are resettled or as they um, seek asylum in different countries. So I want to give you an opportunity to give us a little bit of insight into, into your book and into what you found in regards to the Syrian 
Nigerian um, families that you were able to speak with and really follow. Um, so if you could first just kind of give us an overview of who it was that you were able to talk to and then the countries in which they were um, being resettled. Sure. So to pick up an earlier thread from our conversation, we talked about what happens when folks are displaced and the possibilities for them to start again in countries that are offering them more dignified lives. So countries like like the United States, Canada and Germany, which were the central three countries in my study. But we have this idea that once somebody gets from the country of immediate refuge or from Syria, to these destination countries, to countries that offer them legal status um, through asylum or through resettlement, that these are the ends of their journeys, right? We even call them sort of solutions to displacement. But really what I show in my book is that these are new experiences of displacement. They're continuations of the path to refuge. Because what happens when people are resettled in the United States, Canada, or Germany is that they have to confront as people who have just experienced tremendous losses from war, lost people, lost homes, lost livelihoods, as people who are arriving while speaking a different language, right? The destination's mother tongue is not their own. As people who are going to have to contend with new labor markets, create new relationships, but more importantly, contend with new state systems, mm -hmm. right? Contend with structures around social welfare, around how we support low-income people, about how we support immigrants, um, and also race, racism, right? Racial structures at which in which they're racialized as sort of minorities and others. We're really talking about them beginning a new um, battle, right? Beginning a new journey into lives and into trying to construct the lives that they dream for themselves and for their children. And what I show in the book is that we have this idea that what determines how people do in destination countries is who they are right? Some aspect of their attributes, whether they were, if, you know, if you, we have this idea that if you were a doctor or a lawyer, or you had a lot of human capital, that you are going to do well, you have a good education, that you're going to do well in the destination country. And what I show in Refuge is that it really depends on how the destination country receives you, right? Mm -hmm. Human capital is something that is structured by the destination country. And the reason for that is that it, it, it matters less what you did before um, as much as what whether or not what you did before is recognized in the country receiving you. Do they see your credentials as mattering? Do they see the work that you did before as mattering to the destination country there? And also whether they invest in you. Are countries giving you the resources that you need in terms of time, in terms of money, in terms of educational resources that allow you to translate the things that you've done before in the con in the destination country? So I think about these two things, recognition and investment, and I show that they really differ across the United States, Canada, and Germany based on the fact that the United States, Canada, and Germany have very different perspectives on how to support low-income people in general in their country, and by extension, how to support immigrants in their country. Mm -hmm. I think this is so important to really think about what happens after folks are, you know, resettled or welcomed into a nation. As you mentioned, uh, we often kind of end the story there as if, okay, these folks are now, um, they're no longer just, they're no, they're no longer leaving or fleeing. There's some sort of maybe permanency is the idea um, and some sort of legal status that'll allow them to integrate into the new, you know, new nation. And that's, 
just the beginning of another part of their story. Um, And so when we're thinking about this idea, as you mentioned, of recognition, I think that's so important because we see this or hear stories about this all the time of how folks immigrate, you know, to the U.S. and they were, you know, doctors or business owners, but they come here and they're basically starting from scratch in a lot of different instances because there's not that recognition of um, their human capital, of, you know, their credentials or of their expertise in, in this nation. And so I'm wondering, you spoke kind of briefly about the investments that these various countries have in um, the displaced persons or immigrants in the, who are now in the nation. And I'm wondering what were the different types of investments or where do you see maybe more positive and supportive investments taking place? Sure. So to understand how people are received, and this is becoming, this is, you know, salient for refugees um, in all three countries, regardless of where you come from, right? So for people from from Ukraine who are arriving to these three countries, these are going to be issues that they contend with as well. And the idea is that across these countries, it derives from approaches to, as I said before, who belongs and how we treat people who we deem to belong, but also conceptions of how we treat low-income people, right? Mm -hmm. So in the United States where you have racialized poverty, where low-income people tend to be people of color, and that is because of, um, you know, histories of enslavement. It's also histories of denial, histories of segregation, right? Low-income people tend to be people of color. You have also a welfare system, unsurprisingly, that does not support low-income people. And it's a very uh, racialized welfare system. So in, in 1996, you get the current welfare system, which is uh, structured around temporary assistance for needy families, which puts lifetime limits on, on the kind of assistance people can receive. So if you're poor in the United States, you shouldn't be poor for longer than five years, because that's the max amount that you can receive from this kind of assistance. And what ends up happening is that you create a system called self-sufficiency, right? So self-sufficiency is the goal of temporary assistance for needy families. And self-sufficiency is also the goal of our national resettlement program from 1980 Refugee Act. And self-sufficiency really means that the government does not want you to rely on services from the government. And therefore, what ends up happening is that people who need support, who need help, when we all need help sometimes, right, people who need help, are told, no, you don't get help. You have to enter the labor market and sort of fend for yourself. So what this looks like is that families arrive to the United States, again, carrying the traumas of war that I've described, not speaking the language. Um, And a lot of them were middle-class people in Syria, owned their own restaurants, were plumbers, were carpenters, were electricians, and get here and say, well, there are things I know how to do. I'm, I'm a skilled person. But in the American system, they become quickly unskilled because if you don't speak English, you can't work a job that requires for you to engage with other people who are English speakers. And so people end up working jobs like uh, barbacks in in restaurants, right, or in in bars. Um, They work uh, as as dishwashers. They work as gas station attendants. Um, They work jobs that require very little by way of language capital and through which they cannot earn additional language capital because by by definition, they don't need the language to work the job. So a lot of their colleagues don't either. And so you end up in the quicksand of American poverty in a rut. Now, the other thing that we know about the American labor market is that at its lowest rungs, right, it's super precarious. 
Um, you don't have control over your hours. You're working shift work. So for people who are forced into the American labor market, like other low-income people in the United States, um, you know, it is very hard to work your way up out of that, right? It's very hard to experience upward mobility. And so, and it's a loss for us and a loss for the people who are newly arrived, because it means that they're also not contributing at the rate that they would like to contribute. We're not using the skills that they brought with them. And so we see, um, particularly for men, Mm-hmm. an erosion of human capital. Now, because in the Syrian family specifically, men were uh, the breadwinners of the household. They were the ones who entered the labor market. Now, women who stayed out of the labor market show us a little bit the possibility of what could happen if people were provided with more time and resources, because the women do attend English classes. And five years in, they speak more English classes than the men. However, even with that, because they also had to enter the labor market, because there isn't, we don't have childcare benefits in the United States that allow them to leave their children in daycare, to provide um, you know, a support for the family unit, they also didn't get to benefit as much as they possibly could have had we had these other ballasts. So five years in, uh, you know, both men and women were still struggling with language, though the men more uh, than the women, and they were working jobs that were, you know, menial jobs. Nobody had moved up uh, into another kind of occupation because they just simply hadn't been given the opportunity to, right? Mm-hmm. In Canada, where there's a more expansive social safety net, in large part because Canada has a super restrictive immigration system. So it's really important to note here that it's not because Canada is less uh, racist towards immigrants than the United States. It's because, uh, you know, Canada is surrounded by frigid water on three sides, on the on the fourth it's protected by the third country um, agreement, which means that they could send people back to the United States um, mm-hmm. who arrive in an undocumented form over the, U- uh, over the US-Canadian border. Um, and so Canada and Canada also restricts, you know, people who arrive to Canada, it has a skill-based migration. So you have to have the skills to arrive there. So of course they have a generous, uh, you know, social safety net when it comes to immigrants because a lot of their immigrants are highly skilled immigrants. So a lot of their immigrants don't need Um, the net, but refugees do benefit from it. So you've got a system in Canada where the generosity, we're having public health care, we're having a child, um, uh, a Canadian child benefit, which is, um, you know, comes out to about $450 uh, a month per child for the poorest families. Um, We're having, um, you know, refugee cash assistance, which is a year of support for people arriving, means that both men and women do go to English classes. Mm -hmm. And refugees in general in Canada, you know, studies show, um, you know, 15 years after their arrival, do about as well as other Canadians in terms of their income and in terms of their um, ability to speak English, right? So they do as well as other immigrants and other Canadians. Now, Germany is an interesting case, and this is where the piece about recognition comes in. So in Germany, it's a super generous system. So it's a corporatist system, which means that the state is coordinating with um, employers and coordinating with uh, unions to create a system where in order to work certain jobs, you have to have certain credentials. And this is to protect against things like union busting or to protect against, you know, to protect workers' rights, you know, originally. But it also originates in guilds and, you know, Bismarck and things that the reader, that the listeners probably are not as interested in. <laughs> um, but it is a kind of cool thing for those history buffs out there. Um, in any case, what ends up happening is that there are very narrow pathways to German jobs. So you arrive, say you arrive also, you you know, you worked as a plumber, a bus driver. You get to Germany and first things first, you have to learn the language. So they have very, very generous social assistance. They cover your rent, give you a monthly stipend, but you've got to learn German. 
And for people who maybe don't speak English, don't know the Latin letters, this can be a really, really hard task that can take, you know, a year, two, maybe three years to get through the four classes of German it requires to get any job. So you get your basic German in the A levels and then the first, the B level to get a German job. But then after you get your B1, right, your first of your B levels, which means you, you should be relatively conversational, um, you have to go to training. You have to train in a German company in order to work even as a plumber, even as a bus driver, right? Um, and that training can take an additional three years. And so for somebody who arrives, who has a history, who is credentialed, who feels like they want to join and want to be income earners um, in the German system, sometimes the, the, the runway for that is five years, which can feel um, really emotionally jarring, right? Like I asked the listener to think, you know, how would you feel if everything that you've done in your life was just erased? Nobody cared about it. It was meaningless to everybody around you, meaningless to where you arrived. And so in the German case, the issue of recognition becomes really salient, right? Are you recognized um, as being uh, somebody who is who is good in that society, who is productive in that society? And as one Syrian guy said to me, you know, it feels like when I got here, I was I'm a newborn right? I'm a grown man, but it feels like I'm a newborn. Um, and so, and so that, that is the experience of Syrians in the German system. So as y'all can hear, you know, in the three cases, you've got people who arrive with very similar sets of skills, right? Plumber in the United States, plumber in Canada, plumber in Germany, but whether or not they're able to work as a plumber really de depends on how the system receives them. Um, and that's the argument of, of the book. Mm -hmm. You know, when we're thinking about, I know a lot of folks often think about just the legal process, right, of folks being um, able to migrate or refugees, you know, being resettled in, in a nation. And the legal process is really just one aspect of it that is very arduous in itself. But even just, you know, listening to you kind of give us the brief summary of what you were seeing happening in these three different countries, I think it really brings to the forefront how these ideas of belonging, which are very very much outside of the, of the legal process, really shape how, in this case, Syrians, but we can think about other refugees as well, are then received. And as you mentioned, this idea of belonging and national belonging, we're all experiencing the outcomes of this mm -hmm. um, as well, even for folks who maybe, you know, are U.S. citizens or were born here, naturalized here, we all still experience it because, as you mentioned before, there is a racialized structure or a racialized understanding of who belongs in the in the national family or who really um, is contributing, quote unquote, to the to the nation. And we just see this playing out and how um, refugees are then incorporated or not into the nation as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think to that point, people are learning to do American race and learning to do Canadian race and learning to do German race. And it's not intuitive. Mm -hmm. You know, I teach students in my class that you know, I teach students in my class about racism and about structural inequality and about how race is sort of socially constructed, right? And when we say that race is socially constructed, what we mean is that not that it's not real, but that it's not based on things that are biologically different or that are um, predetermined attributes of people. So we create buckets as a society, we create buckets that we put people in. But it's very strange. And the, the way that you can see it as socially constructed is when people arrive to it and they look at their skin tone and they look around them and they say, you know, am I white? 
Am I not white? What does that even mean? You know, who am I grouped with? It is completely arbitrary and it's something that people learn. And I, I wrote a paper about this specific thing, about what happens when people arrive and how do they learn? They're a part of the American racial structure. And, you know, what I argue there is that it really depends on these moments of acute racialization, but also which are, which are experiences of discrimination. Somebody calling you a nasty name. Somebody tell you to go the F home, right? Those are kinds of ways in which people experience that, but also state policies. The travel ban, the, the, the rejection of, of Syrian uh, refugees from this country in terms of, uh, you know, at the state level, when governors said that they didn't want to resettle Syrian refugees in their states. Um, the reduction of our refugee resettlement program um, to almost to zero under the Trump administration. These are all the ways that people learned where they sat racially in the United States. Now, similarly in Germany, right, people describe experiences of interpersonal discrimination, people leaving mean notes under their doors, um, you know, people spitting on them in the bus. You learn very quickly where you sit and why people don't like you and that people don't like you for who you are um, in these systems, in these really violent um, and, and devastating ways. That is another aspect of this is, is the learning of what it means um, to be to not belong, right? To be racialized, to be othered. Um, and these are not systems that exist everywhere. And so these are people coming from homogenous countries to this country, hoping to start anew and recognizing where they sit uh, in systems that, that, that way predate them, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, just speaking to your earlier point, um, for refugees, they are learning these new systems, both thinking about the legal process, social services, but then also um, racially, right? And having to navigate that. And there are real costs if you don't understand how to navigate these various systems um, in this new nation, right? And so I can only imagine how overwhelming that must be. And then to also come into this kind of U.S. system of individualism, meritocracy, and self-sufficiency when it comes to different welfare programs, um, that is a very steep learning curve and one that does not set up folks for success, um, even as, you know, resettlement and these legal recognition is, is framed as kind of the pathway to being successful and the pathway to kind of starting over. Um, but that really isn't the case. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, when you, when you, when you look at it this way, something that I've also argued is we have this understanding of the culture of poverty. And even though we've, we've left that behind. So the cultural poverty is the idea that low-income people just have different values and that's why they remain poor, right? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you get poor, you're sort of culturally oriented to remaining poor. And, you know, we, we think we've abandoned this as sociologists and we think we've abandoned this conception as a country. But when you look at our welfare policy, the fact that we're incentivizing people out of welfare, the fact that it is temporary, means that we're assuming that there's something wrong, that the person who is poor just doesn't want to not be poor, right? There's an underlying assumption there that if you have to truncate the cash assistance you're giving folks, that if you're monitoring folks and making sure that they're applying for jobs, that if those are the kinds of, you know, and if, and if you're giving folks really, really low amounts of cash, like you're assuming that they're not responsible, that they don't want to not be poor. And what the case of the refugees, I think, shows is that you're admitting people into this country and saying, and people who are middle-class people, people who have worked very, very hard in their lives, people who got their family not only out of a war, 
but out of another situation of immediate refuge, right? These are exceptional people. They're not your standard, um, you know, they're, they're, they're exceptional in, this, in the sense that they actually got themselves out of the situation that they found themselves in. And they arrive to the United States and they confront the American system and they have the same experience as everyone else. And it just clarifies that it is not people who want to remain in poverty. It's not people who individually don't want better for themselves or for their children. But the country, the way that the, that our country is structured, the way our labor markets are structured, the way our social assistance is structured, the way we don't help people and we don't give people um, a hand a hand up, right, is that we're not we're we're creating a situation where we're pushing people into these situations of poverty, right, and we're we're forcing them to remain there because we don't have systems that allow upward mobility. And it's a really sad and devastating reality when it's our systems that are structured to support people are the ones that are keeping them down. And you can really see it in this case of, of the refugees who are arriving because they're not people who grew up poor, but they're still having the same experience of poverty vis-a-vis -vis the American system. Mm, that is so important what you just said, how these systems are created to actually keep people poor or even to kind of shuffle people into poverty. Um, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're back here on Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Heba Goyed, the Mormon Simon Assistant Professor of Sociology at Boston University. And we've been talking about some of her findings from her new book, Refuge, How the State Shapes Human Potential. And I know we've talked a lot about some of the problems and the obstacles, but as we kind of talked about in the, in the first segment, you know, we also want to look at this as instructive for some of the policy changes or some of the possibilities that we could create um, to really make things more equitable um, and to really support refugees and not to just replicate the systems as they are, um, but really think about, okay, what is the type of future that we might all like that benefits us all? And so I'm wondering from your research and even thinking about everything that's happening now with Ukraine and, and, and other um, global crises, what are some different, I guess, policies or maybe even possibilities that we could be implementing implementing or starting to construct to help us um, help us actually help <laughs> displaced persons? Yeah, that's a great question, Sana. And I think that, you know, there's, there's my work to a certain extent helps us think about specific policies on the ground. But I think mm -hmm. that the place where I would like to contribute most is sort of imagining different possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. When we see that people from Ukraine are welcomed across borders, seen as people, humans who need help and welcomed across borders and that those borders are not rigid to them. They don't die on the other side. There aren't walls built to keep them out. It began, you begin to think about possibilities of what it would look like, what the world would look like if black and brown people who were also moving across the world were seen as humans in the same way. And really, I mean, that's not a policy statement as much as it is an imagination of what, what it looks like if we are truly humane in the way that we conceptualize others and if we truly see others as human beings just like us. Mm -hmm. And on the ground, you know, and this is really the, the themes of recognition and investment sort of permeate this, right? So first is recognition, recognition of other people's humanity, recognition of other people's aspirations, of their dreams for themselves, of what they can do, of their potential. 
being willing to invest in that potential, right? Being willing to, to invite them here, to give them a home here, um, to create opportunities for them to come here. So in practical policy terms, this means increasing our resettlement quotas. It means opening up the US-Mexico border for asylum applications. It means you know, speeding up asylum procedure, procedures because asylum has always been a mess at the US-Mexico border and has always left people um, in devastating long patterns of waiting. Um, but it means sort of thinking about what we're doing when we are create construct such rigid borders between us and people who need to be here, right? Um, and then on practical policy perspective as well, you know, right now the 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 Biden administration has committed to admitting hundred thousand refugees from Ukraine. Now that is wonderful, but. At the height of the Syrian crisis in 2016, there were about six and a half million Syrians displaced, and we took in about 12,000 Syrians, right? And what happens to our quotas when we decide we're going to allocate 100,000 to, to people from Ukraine? What happens to everybody else, right? Still, to this day, the largest number of displaced is Syrian, right? But we're not putting a quota of 100,000 aside for them, right? Eritreans have been dealing with, with, with a war-torn country for decades, but we're not putting aside that number for them. And what I would like to see is not a reduction of the number of folks from Ukraine who are offered resettlement, but an expansion of this program so that it's not just that 1% of people in the world are, are, are uh, able to access it. So in short, an expansion of resettlement, an expansion of asylum, but also a shift in how we treat people once they get here, right? So again, picking up the themes of recognition and investment, are we able through our systems, through our local systems that receive folks, are we recognizing them again as full human beings who have capabilities, who have things they could offer? And are we investing in their abilities to offer that, right? And this means English classes available in our cities. This means providing people with longer durations of social assistance so that they can benefit from those classes. This means reductions in the costs of education when it comes to these folks, right? And so and this means provision of childcare benefits. But importantly, it means thinking about those things when it comes to everybody who needs them in this country, right? So the policies that I, you know, the, the policy contributions that I have from this project are some in, a, in terms of the imagination of the structure of our policies themselves, some that have to do specifically to refugees themselves, but also underlying them is, an, is, is a, a reflection on our system and our social welfare system as a whole, right? Are we actually supporting low-income folks in this country? Are we supporting, uh, you know, people who need our support, right? Who need our help, who are part and parcel of, of the United States and of the America that I belong to. Yes. I mean, that is so important because as you said, how we treat refugees is a reflection of kind of our own national values and these other social systems that we have in place for folks who we say are already part of, you know, national belonging. And so we just see them really, as you mentioned earlier, we see them more clearly when we're thinking about, you know, refugees and how they're being incorporated, but they are in fact the systems in place that we use for folks who are already here. Um, now, I want to give you a few minutes to talk about what you have next. What's coming up next for you? Yeah, so um, when I began, when I was conducting research for refuge, and particularly in Germany, one of the things that really stuck out to me were descriptions of people's journeys to Germany. So you had to leave Syria. So 
as I said before, resettlement, a very small number of people are resettled. So a lot of, for a lot of people, securing refuge means getting to countries where you need to be. And these are really harrowing journeys where people navigate expanses of land and water that are heavily policed. And so people leave Syria, they have to find a way to get from Syria to these nearby countries, which is no easy task given the militarization of Syria itself, it's in a civil war. And then when they arrive to countries like Jordan, like Lebanon, like Turkey, they need to figure out what's next. So for a lot of people, it means traveling to Turkey, to places like Izmir, which are on the border with Greece, um, and swimming uh, across or uh, actually riding a boat across, um, which is on an inflatable raft most often. So these are dinghies. They are... Um, they are very uh, cheap for smugglers to operate, but they are very expensive for people to get on. So the going rate at the time that I was writing the, the book that I was writing Refuge was about a thousand euros per person for no life raft, for no life vest, for nothing, um, no no kind of security. Uh, but you know you're you're stuck in with sixty or seventy other people on this on this life raft to get from Turkey to Greece, and a lot of people died. I mean, we remember we all remember the body of little Ellen Cordy, who was three years old, who washed up on the shore of Greece as a result um, of this kind of attempt of a journey. And as one mother told me, you know, putting your child on a life raft is really going into debt to put your child, as she said, in the arms of death. Right. Um, and so families do not take this lightly. It is a very difficult decision. And then once they arrived in Greece, they had to make their way across Europe to the country that they wanted to go to. So, for instance, a family going to Germany had to get to Athens, had to make their way up over land, had to pass through countries like Hungary, which are very, very hostile to them, um, where families were regularly uh, imprisoned uh, for for a couple of days um, until they gave up their fingerprints, which is how they're registered in the EU. Um, and, and what ends up, the story that they tell is one of real um, intense costs, physical, emotional, and financial cost. And it made me wonder and think about how these, how people who are on the move uh, experience borders and what this tells us about the cost of borders right? That they're, that they become sort of transactions, that they become these, you know, smugglers fees and, 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 you know, depends on what people are willing to spend. Um, borders are also fortified by intensive uh, expenditure for, by states, right? By countries. And so you have these very, very expensive border walls, you have digital technologies, you have all this fortification that goes in to creating these borders. So if we look at it from the perspective of cost, both from the expenditures that people are making and from the perspective that states are making, right? The border um, stops being a moral object, stops being a marker of state sovereignty and becomes a transaction, right? Depends on what people are spending on it. Mm -hmm. um, and so this project theorizes borders as a transaction that is always costly um, and often deadly and sees borders from the perspective of the people crossing and asks if borders are a transaction, if we agree that this is what you know, creates them, then what does this mean for countries defined by them, right? And what does this mean for, you know, for, for our notions of our morals and our notions of our sovereignty and our notions of who we are as Americans and what the United States is? And so that's the project that I'm doing now. It centers borders between the US, United States and Mexico, but also um, between Greece and Turkey. And these are two areas which, as Gloria and Zaldua put it, um, are where the, you know, as she said, and at the 
the time this was a proper uh, terminology, but where the first world grates against the third and where the third world, sorry, grates against the first and bleeds, right? So it's this idea of um, the frontier between, you know, countries that were former colonizers and countries that were former colonized, right? Countries that, um, have hegemon, you know, have a hegemonic place in our global world order, and countries that have really been left behind, um, you know, at the at and and that have been left behind, you know, at whose expense, right? Those countries became wealthy, and so that's what this project does: it centers borders from the perspective of people on the move. Mm, such important work. I mean, as we just think about, again, the continued movement of folks globally, um, but also the way that nations are continuing to fortify themselves. I think these are important questions that will continue to have relevance. Um, well, I want to thank you so much for being here with us this morning. How can folks find out more about you and find the book? Thank you so much for having me, Sana. This was really, really lovely. Um, I, so you can find more about me on my website, Heba, H-E-B-A-G-O-W-A-Y-E-D. So that's my first name and last name, Heba Gwayed.com. Um, you can also find the book. It's for sale uh, on the Princeton University um, website, but also on Amazon. And it's called Refuge, How the State Shapes Human Potential. Um, and thank you so much for listening and for having me on today. Yes, thank you. It's such a pleasure. Thank you again to Dr. Heba Goyad for joining us this morning. I am still blown away by that stat that we opened today's conversation with, and that's that one in 95 folks are displaced globally, one in 95. And as we talked about early in the conversation, you know, this number will continue to increase as we think about the climate crisis and as we think about ongoing conflicts that are happening around the world, as well as other conflicts that might occur as well. And so I think this conversation really just gives us a lot to think about in how we are um, welcoming refugees, but also in how we are treating folks um, in the U.S. currently, those who are citizens and even folks who are not citizens. So definitely a lot to think about this morning. Well, I want to leave you with a positive quote, of course. And so this says, look for something positive in each day, even even if some days you have to look a little harder. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with you every Monday morning. A great way to start off your day and your week. And if you missed any part of this conversation or maybe you want to listen to it again or send it to a friend, definitely check out the archives on WYXR.org or subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee. It's available in podcast format wherever you stream podcasts. I can't wait to have you back here with me next Monday morning.